You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Mark, so you recently published um, Making Sense of the Dollar. Why don't you try to convey some of the thoughts and why you could see the dollar staying strong in the foreseeable future? Sure. So uh, my book was published by Bloomberg Press in 2009, and it really is a, uh, a summary, really, of what I've learned as a currency strategist on Wall Street since the mid-'80s. And probably the most important thing that I find in my book, which I tend not to be very patriotic. I tend to root for Cuba when the U.S. plays Cuban baseball. But the conclusion of my analysis led me to find that the U.S. dollar and the expansion strategy of U.S. corporations is more durable than many of the U.S. friends and enemies may suspect. I'll give you an example. The question comes up, how do U.S. companies service foreign markets? And the traditional answer is by exporting. That's just not true. It hasn't been true since before I was born. The way that U.S. companies service foreign demand is by building locally, selling locally, so that the sales by the affiliates of U.S. multinationals is something on the magnitude of four times more than U.S. exports. This has important ramifications. For example, most recently, where the dollar has been strengthening, people say, oh, the strong dollar is going to hurt U.S. corporate earnings, and many U.S. corporates have complained about the strong dollar diminishing their earnings. What's not what's left unsaid is that because of this direct investment strategy rather than export oriented strategy, it means that U.S. companies hire lots of foreign workers. How many? Something like 5.8 million workers hired by the six companies and most recent data is for 2012. Those employees earned about $450 billion from U.S. companies. Right. So when U.S. companies say that they get this revenue overseas, I say, yes, that's true, but they also have liabilities overseas, like wages. In addition to that, in 2012, U.S. corporations spent another roughly $45 billion on research and development overseas. So roughly speaking, that tells me that U.S. companies earn profits overseas for sure, have earnings overseas, but incurred, roughly speaking, $500 billion in local expenses that they don't even, they don't, people don't talk about that. Typically, a corporate will say, uh, we lost, uh, earnings were diminished by 7% because of fluctuations in the currency market. Reporters have, have like, a, I want to say, have surrendered their, uh, their objectivity and looking out for citizens instead of acting like corporate flacks and do not press corporations on hedging strategies. What about these revenues incurred in local currencies and expenditures? And so to me, this was, this helped. What this insight let me do then is let me see past the headline. And I think it's an evolutionary strategy in a sense that it responds to floating, which means volatile currencies. Back in late 90, the Japanese data, Ministry of Finance data, suggests Japanese corporations also made that turn where their local affiliate sales exceeded exports. So, for example, many of the cars that you see being driven, Japanese brands being driven in Europe or the U.S., were made there, not exported. Very interesting. So, Mark, many people are calling for the decline of the U.S. Uh, I spoke to Jim Rogers. So many different people have been saying that. And as China acting as a, a likely candidate uh, to be an economic powerhouse. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I the U.S. has historically very well. I don't think someone's about to eat our lunch. And you can go back to the founding of the U.S. 
over 250 years ago, and people made the same arguments, that you couldn't have a representative form of government over a large territory. Every so often, think about what happened before the communist uh, revolution in Russia, we were, we were, we were we were sort of bothered by anarchists. Then it was going to be, uh, remember Khrushchev taking that shoe off at the UN, pounding on the table, saying that the Russia was going to bury the West. Then, then when, when I was in graduate school, it was going to be the Japanese were going to take over, were going to replace the U.S. Then it was the Eurozone. For a while, there was, uh, the Chinese were talking about SDRs. Some right. of my friends uh, at other banks were talking about Bitcoins. And so I think that uh, more... Americans or Europeans are thinking more about China replacing the U.S. than the Chinese officials I talk to. Right. Chinese officials I talk to tell me, they say, uh, a sick camel is bigger than a horse. The U.S. is a sick camel in their example, and they are the horse. They, they're not ready to replace the U.S. They've done, they've done extremely well by benefiting from the world in which the U.S. has helped create through free trade, like the WTO, right. and the open trade and technology. And so uh, I think that uh, we are a long way from China. I mean, Chinese currency is, uh, chi- if you want to buy, if you're a central bank and you want to put Chinese currency in your reserves, you have to ask for permission. China limits how much foreigners can buy of their stuff mm-hmm. to about $300 billion currently. Maybe it's a little bit more. Global reserves are over $10 trillion. China could not replace the U.S. even if it wanted to, and I suggest to you that it doesn't really want to. But instead, I do think there is a kernel of truth to what people are saying. And I think that what it reflects is a, a profound skepticism of the path that the U.S. is on. Is the U.S. Uh, able to still be the top dog country, the hegemon? And many people doubt that. I think that the, uh, the jury, I'd say, is still out. Right, but right. I think that most of what people are talking about is a gross exaggeration. But they are looking for an alternative to the U.S., and right. I just happen to think that there's not a compelling alternative right now. Okay. And what are your thoughts on the the Fed right now and the whole interest rate situation? We recently heard from um, the FOMC about what they're thinking about. Um, what are your thoughts here? Sure. I think that in some ways I'd say that the U.S. Federal Reserve is like the Chinese Communist Party. There's a central committee. Mm-hmm. And on that central committee, policy emanates. In the U.S., that, that central committee, the Trioka, is Yellen, the chairperson, right. Stanley Fisher, the, yep. the vice chairman, and Bill Dudley, the New York Fed president. Mm-hmm. These three, I believe, talk, when they speak, they are speaking, they tend to be on message, and they convey the thinking of the Fed's leadership. That means that the organ of their views is the FOMC statement. The March FOMC statement dropped the word patience, but recognized that U.S. growth had moderated. But of course it moderated. April to September last year, the U.S. economy grew by an annualized rate better than 4%. The economy slowed in Q4, slowed further in Q1, and partly the slowdown here, I'd say, is weather-related, as well as we've had some uh, large industrial, that is, labor disputes at the West Coast ports. Right. I expect when the econ- that as spring finally comes to the East Coast in the U.S., and other parts of the country, that the economic data is going to be getting a bit better. Mm-hmm. I'm in a camp that thinks the Federal Reserve will be raising interest rates sometime before the end of the summer. That is, for, uh, to cut it to like, what does that really mean? June or September. I think the Federal Reserve will raise rates. I think that in order to, what the Fed wants to do is normalize policy so that they can do some other things. So, for example, 
next year, depending on some assumptions you can make, something on the magnitude of 500 to 800 billion dollars of assets the Federal Reserve has on their balance sheets will mature. Mm-hmm. They, they can't let these things roll off until they begin raising interest rates. That's what they've indicated. Okay. So I think that the, uh, the Fed is going to begin a tightening cycle, modest tightening cycle. So basically we're talking about right now Fed funds are at 0 to 25 basis points. That's an important point too. Previously, the Fed would have a single, like a fixed point target. Fed funds 2% target. Now it is a range. The current range is 0 to 25 basis points. When the Fed hikes rates, like I say, sometime, I think, before the end of the summer, the, next, the 25 basis point hike will lift the Fed funds target range to, to 25 to 50 basis points. I think that this cycle will be different than past cycles for two big reasons. One is that the last tightening cycle, Greenspan raised rates 25 basis points at every meeting. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be that predictable. I don't think it's going to be that like that this time. Secondly, I think that where the, what a lot of our clients are asking is besides the pace of the hikes, what's the terminal rate? And my best guess right now is the terminal rate is between 2 and 2.5%, mm-hmm. close to the inflation target. And that I project to be in late 2017, early 2018. Okay. In, in terms of um, the U.S. dollar right now, um, what is your stance based on, you know, there, there's some people that believe there's a certain tolerance to the strength that the U.S. dollar can demonstrate um, domestically in the U.S. Um, there's also people that would argue valuations are relatively lofty. Um, there's also people that are saying that um, speculators, everyone's basically long the U.S. dollar. Um, what, what are your thoughts on all this? Yeah, sure. So uh, I, I don't think the, the dollar plays a very important role. That is a salient role for Fed policymaking. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, a measure that they look at to try to determine the financial, so the monetary and financial conditions in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I think that um, I think the market is misunderstanding uh, what the Fed is talking about the dollar most recently. Right. Uh, for example, I think about it at the Yellen's press conference. The FOMC statement itself did not mention the word dollar. Mm-hmm. Yellen mentioned the word, mentioned the dollar, talking about a transitory impact on depressing exports and, as she said, one of the factors depressing exports and uh, depressing import prices. However, reporters asked her a lot more about the dollar. And so it seems to me reporters asked her about the dollar and then they were able to write up stories that Yellen's emphasizing the dollar. Right. Uh, I don't, I don't see that to be the case. I was at, uh, Stanley Fisher's speech to the Economic Club in New York uh, earlier this week, mm-hmm. and he did mention the dollar, but it was a Q&A that really focused more on the dollar. Right. My sense is that when the Federal Reserve does raise rates, the dollar will be stronger than it is now, not weaker. Mm-hmm. And I think that to understand this, I think to appreciate that the, that the U.S. only exports about 15% of GDP. Germany, for example, exports about 40% of GDP. China exports 40% of GDP. Same thing with Switzerland and Finland. And so I think that the U.S. the U.S. is a large economy and it basically consumes 85% of what it produces. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, so I, I think that the market has exaggerated the idea of currency wars. Uh, I think that uh, Fisher was very clear on this. He endorsed wholeheartedly the monetary policy decisions by the 
for the Europeans and the Japanese to stimulate their economy. He did not call it a currency war. He denied that it was a currency war. He said this is this is a consequence of a monetary policy. It is not being sought at as an end goal in itself. Right, right. So my general thinking is that the uh, reporters uh, make a, it's dramatic to call things currency wars. Reporters get a lot of mileage out of it. But at the end of the day, I don't think we're in a currency war. I think of this as a bit of arms control. Yeah. We have chemical weapons. We have nuclear weapons. We have other weapons of mass destruction. Most countries have promised not to use them. Same way, that we could we could have beggar thy neighbor policies, currency wars. But the major industrialized countries have indicated that they are forswearing that. They're not going to use that. And so far, I think that it's been fairly robust arms control. Right. Um, besides the U.S. dollar, what other currencies are of interest to you right now? Well, I think that the uh, the dollar euro is the most most actively traded exchange rate, uh, followed by uh, dollar yen. Uh, I find that dollar yen, uh, rather than being a trending currency, I find it often to be a range trading, range bound currency, and when mm-hmm. it looks like it's trending, it's moving from one range to another. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the uh, the so called uh, 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 commodity currencies, which I, I tend to not like that name for like currencies like the Canadian and Australian dollar right. are interesting. I tend to think those economies are diversified. Commodities gets us to think about trade, what they produce, what they are trading, exporting. And I think that is a misnomer in the foreign exchange market, which is also, I try to bring that out in my book as well. Capital flows, this is how the economy differs from, say, our grandparents' economy. Capital flows far and away out, outpace trade flows. For example, the foreign exchange market is roughly $5.3 trillion a day, the mm-hmm. average daily turnover. Biggest, deepest market in the world. In one week, there's enough turnover in the foreign exchange market to cover world trade for more than a year. Mm-hmm. So even when I look at Canada, I, I realize the Canadian dollar has been very sensitive to oil, more sensitive to oil than I would have thought. Right. But it's not really because it's commodity currency. It's not because it's Canada imports a lot of U.S. oil. I know the U.S. has a ban on oil exports, but Canada is an exception. Right. Canada also imports oil in the east, exports oil in the west. Those oil flows are swamped by the capital flows between, say, the U.S. and Canada, or between Canada and the rest of the world. Mm. And so uh, I think what happened was the Canadian economy was highly leveraged to the uh, to high oil prices, high commodity prices. I think that Canada and Australia uh, had experienced a positive terms of trade shock. Right. And now they're experiencing a negative terms of trade shock. And so in my uh, vision of what's happening, I think that this is the third big uh, bull market for the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. And uh, hardly any currency can stand up to it. And uh, it's still in its fairly early stages. For example, looking again at the euro, when the dollar, when the, uh, the dollar rallied under the, under the Reagan rally, that we might label it, uh, the euro, its equivalent, because the euro didn't exist then, fell by about 57%. Right. During the Clinton years, that dollar rally was associated with the euro's decline of about 45%. The euro, the euro peaked at 160. So I'm thinking the euro's on its way to test its old historic lows back in around in October 2000, around 82 cents. Oh, excellent. B- basically, one final question is, um, what do you what do you think is the the impact of of quantitative easing now in Europe and in Japan? Sure, I think that the quantitative easing the ECB is doing is is helping to drive down interest rates. Mm-hmm. It's helping to drive down the euro, and over time, the decline in the euro, the decline in interest rates, and the decline in oil prices will help promote 
stronger growth in the Eurozone. This is part of the adjustment process, part of a corrective process that will lead to better growth in the future. And so this is just part of the cycle as well. The dollar gets stronger, euro gets weaker, and then down the road, maybe not for a year, two years from now, the Eurozone economy is going to get stronger. They'll be able to begin raising interest rates. Mm. Uh, Federal Reserve might get done with this tightening cycle. We'll have to cut interest rates, and then we're going to be in a new dollar bear market several years off. Okay, thanks. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com. 